So the word that we're going to hear today is just a continuation of what we began last week. And that is from 1 John, and it's the message of my little children. So let's get into it, and it's 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, that begins with that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. That's, that's the promise. That's the intent. That your joy may be full. These things we declare, and he says, that which was from the beginning. What was from the beginning? What was John talking about? For the best answer, I think uh, we can go to the book of John. Not First John, but the book of John, chapter 1. And it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now let's go back to the first part. And it says, we write to you that the things which were from the beginning. We heard, we have seen with our own eyes, we have looked upon them, and our hands have handled concerning the who? Word of life. The word of life. And down here we see that in him, Jesus Christ, was life. And the life was the light of men. Was and is and always will be the life of men. These two statements from the Apostle John show us how Jesus, the Word, can transform a person into one who emulates the Lord Jesus. John was a fisherman and probably had a reputation as a hothead or as someone with whom you did not want to mess. You didn't want to mess with the original young John. He was rough at times impetuous, and at other times perhaps a little willing to share some of the adulation given and belonging to Jesus. You see, he went with Jesus everywhere, right? We talked about this last week. They were with Jesus Christ all the time, everywhere he went. They heard every word he uttered. They saw all of the miracles that he performed. They were with him day and night. He at times also assumed that the authority Jesus had 
also belonged to him and the other apostles. Uh, they were with him, so they would start, you know, move out of the way. Uh, here comes Jesus. They're opening up a, a path for him. And so this, this sort of infers a certain amount of authority. Remember when the children came to Jesus, as shown in Luke 18? Let's read that, that account. Luke 18, 15 through 17. And it says, Then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. They rebuked, rebuked the people that brought the children. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Whoever doesn't come in with that honesty, with that innocence of children, is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. It's not going to be there with us. You've got to be as these little children. But you see, the apostles were looking at it from a different perspective. Jesus was looking at it from the perspective of, he loves us. He loves us all. They were looking at it from, they're bothering him. They're taking up valuable time here. This is time that he should be teaching the adults. After all, the apostles rebuked those who brought children to Jesus so that he would bless them. That's why they were sending him up to Jesus. Go up there. Go talk to Jesus. Look, go see him. And the apostles wanted to prevent that from happening. Why was that? Maybe they thought that Jesus did not want to waste his time receiving little children. After all, children did not understand who Jesus was, and they were just obeying the parent like, Go up there, let him, let him touch you. To the parent, to the adult, of course, that understood the importance of Jesus, God in the flesh, the Son of God incarnate, touching them, embracing them, loving them. They saw it differently. But what happens, I want to remind you of something. What happens, here, and, and I haven't seen this in a long time anymore. I guess it's not popular. What do we see happens when a candidate has a chance to kiss a baby in full view of crowds when they are campaigning? They bring up a little baby and they put him up to the candidate and the candidate, yeah, smiles, a forced smile, kisses the baby. Oh, God, how cute. Everybody claps and blah, blah. Yeah, wait till you have about a hundred of those in your home. It's going to be a different attitude. But here they are campaigning and they're doing everything they can to look good, to appear good, to give the public a different perspective about who you are. I can't see Donald Trump doing that, but, you know, they, they might. The hair would get in the way. But anyway... If they bring the children up to the candidates, you know, the candidate is forced, forced to take the child. But Jesus wasn't forced. He wanted to take the children. He wanted to express his love to them. 
He was genuinely wanting to hug those babies, to touch them. After all, as, as, the, as the scripture says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. This is the kingdom of God coming right here. This little child, bring him, let him, let him close to me, bring him to me, let me hug him. After all, the children didn't understand that. So the candidates, that's one thing. It's one perspective. And, and I want us to see this clearly, that one is forced, the other is genuinely interested in seeing the child's coming to him. Or maybe they can see the candidates in a different light because they hugged the baby. I don't know, you know? I'll ask the grandparents, how do you feel hugging your kids? It's great. Why? Because they can go home after you hug them, right? They don't have to stay with you. They can go home. Okay. Okay, Penny. Go home. You know, that's my little granddaughter. Go home. I, we love to have them overnight, okay? We love to have them there. We had them recently for two days. For two days. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. We love them. Jesus loves them. Jesus loves us. If he could, he would hug every one of us physically, but he's hugging every one of us in a loving spirit. From where he is, he's trying to hug every one of us. Can we receive that? Can we receive that love? We're going to find out right now. Didn't John suggest to Jesus... See, we're still talking about how these guys would try to take some of the authority that Jesus had. Didn't John suggest to Jesus that they, John and Jesus, should call down the fire from heaven to annihilate those who did not agree with them? If we fast forward from the good old days when John was young, first John when the apostles had grown old and, of course, gone through a lot, we now find a man completely changed who counsels, admonishes, and encourages all to listen and learn. It was different when he was younger. The Holy Spirit hadn't yet come down and permeated their life, their hearts, their mind, their spirits. First of all, he says that when he is writing, is, that what he is writing, rather, is to make their joy full. It was at this point, at this time, that the Gnostics had tried to make inroads into the gospel that was being taught in the Christian community. The Gnostics, they were a sort of mystical group and sought to limit the influence of the Holy Spirit to only the spirit of man, but not the soul, and consequently, the mind and the body. In other words, worship God with your heart, but the body is free to party. That was their stance. Keep your mind pure, but don't let that affect the body, okay? Body has to, body has to party. The body has to be free from that constraint that the Holy Spirit brings to us. This was the erroneous teaching that, that was going on. John, Peter, Paul, 
Barnabas, Timothy, etc., etc., all of the early people in the Bible, all, all of the early people, the teachers, the encouragers in the New Testament were dedicated to correcting erroneous teaching and keeping the gospel of Jesus Christ pure and unadulterated. So you see, even as early as this, as them, when they were living, there were already the so-called wolves in sheep's clothing attacking the word, and these men were doing all they could to stem the tide of deception creeping into the church. They were busy now trying to put out those fires of erroneous teaching. Also to take, of course, to new believers, to new converts, but there was a lot of time consumed just correcting erroneous teaching. This was in their time. Jesus hadn't gone back to heaven that long before that, and here we were already erroneous teachings coming into the Christian community. So when John in chapter 1, 4 says, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. He's telling the people that once you have the truth, you have peace, comfort, and joy. Once you know the truth, God is going to change you. Your life is not going to be in turmoil as it was before. You are not going to be walking around in apprehension, in uncertainty, because uncertainty brings apprehension and opens the door to doubt and vulnerability. Don't you know that when we are not sure of something, we're vulnerable. We are vulnerable to somebody coming up with an erroneous bit of information and send us down the wrong path. And this applies to everything, not just to the word. If you are not certain of something, you can be led astray because you haven't taken the time or you just haven't understood or whatever the reason may be. But if you're uncertain, you can be vulnerable. That's what the word talks about. Hey, deception can lead even the elect down the wrong path. And I don't know who would, have, who would admit that they're part of the elect. God chooses the elect. We just walk that way, and God recognizes it, and he says, okay, these are the elect, but I'm not going to tell them because they'll mess it up. They'll get all puffed up. They'll have to buy a whole set of new hats because their head will be too big. It's strange, but when somebody says something nice about us, it sort of makes us get all pushed out of the shape that we were in. Okay, we're human beings, right? Or at least all, all the ones that I'm seeing out here. We're all human beings. God made us this way. He put a few flaws in there, maybe, maybe just to test us. But he put a few flaws in each one of us. Now he can show his love for us by trying to clean us of all of those flaws and just bringing his spirit into our lives, into our hearts, into our minds and show us his immense love. When Eve opened a dialogue with Satan, he planted out in her mind by appealing to her pride. Wouldn't you like to be like God? What? I can do that? 
I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but this was the inference when Satan said, he didn't really say he was going to kill you, did he? He didn't say that you couldn't eat of that fruit, did he? Why would he do that? You see, that is what his questioning led her to hear, that if she ate of the forbidden tree, she would be like God. She would be able to create. She would be able to understand everything. She would be able to be something really fantastic and different. All she had to do was go and eat of the tree. That was easy, wasn't it? Just go eat of the tree. That's it. You'll be like God. That's, that's why he doesn't want you to eat that. And she was willing to listen to that. Now, she knew the truth, right? She knew that she was not supposed to eat of that tree. God had already told her that. She knew that, but she chose to listen to the serpent. God has said that if we eat of that tree, we're going to die. What? What? That's doubt. Are you serious? He said that? Whoa. This is your God? He said that? You understand how subtle that was? Subtlety can weaken our resolve. Subtlety can, well, maybe you're right. You know, let me think about that. Let me pray about this. Humans are great at this. All of us. Christians are great about it. Let me pray about this. That means we're not sure. We're vulnerable. Let me pray about that. I'll, I'll come back to you later. No, no, no. Right there, she knew. God said, no, it's no. That should have been the end of it. It wasn't. It was the beginning of something ugly. Sin. Original sin. In chapter 2 of 1 John, another important point John gives the church is the admonition we read, we read rather last week. And that was chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may, what? Not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. What's he saying? If you sin, well, well, you know, you're, we're weak, and we're human, and yeah, we can fall, uh, but, but Christ is going to clean us, so you're okay. I had a friend uh, in, in junior college one, one night, Saturday night, we were out, we were out at, a, at a little miniature golf course, and they're all drinking beer, he and his other friends, and fortunately, I, I'm blessed that I never got into drinking, but he comes with his beer, and he says, man, I feel clean today. What do you mean? I said, he said, I went to confession. I said, yeah. And he says, well, I'm clean. I can, I'm starting all over again. I'm clean. I said, you're starting with a beer. What are you talking about clean? You're going to be dirty again by next Friday. And then Saturday, you have to go confess again. And every week, it's a perpetuation of the same thing. It's a continuous cycle you're in. Don't you understand? You're right back where you started every week. In the book of John 14, 21, John quotes the words of Jesus when he told the disciples the following. 
Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. If anyone loves me, I don't have to be telling everybody, I don't have to be telling the world what I'm telling you right now because they already have my word. They've been told over centuries and centuries, in fact, millennia, that God loves them, that God requires this of them, that they have these commandments, these laws, these precepts. All of these things have been presented to them. I don't have to be reminding them. They now know that and they need to love me. And if they love me, they're keeping the commandments. That's it. It's, it's that simple. He says, they'll keep the commandments and we, my father and I, will come and do, make our home and dwell with that person. But they must keep the commandments. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear. It's not mine, but the Father's who sent me. I don't tell you anything, he said, that the, the Father doesn't tell me. I'm in communion with my Father constantly, and what he tells me to give you, that's what I give you. I'm not making it up. I'm giving you straight from my Father's heart to yours. Now, is that great? We can hear from God directly through Jesus Christ. So shouldn't we get in prayer too so that we can hear directly from the Father? Directly from the Father. Will he communicate with us? Absolutely. Will he hear us? Absolutely. Isn't that a promise? Hasn't that been promised to us? Amen. It's been promised. He will hear from us once we submit to him, once we're talking to him, once we open up our hearts, once we open up our spirit, he will communicate with us. Can we do that then? Do we do that? That's up to each one of us, right? It's important enough to repeat what Jesus had said years before when he told them that in order to show our love for him, and the Father, we needed to keep his commandments. That's a requirement. We need to keep the command. How else can we show our love for him? How else can we show obedience to him, submission to him, to his spirit? Not a tough thing to understand, is it? Yet, when we think about how difficult it is for many to obey those commandments, we can understand why John was now repeating them so that we may not sin. I'm telling you this so you don't get into sin. Keep the commandments. It's that simple. Keep the commandments. Okay? It's not that simple. It's not that simple. It's a choice we have to make. It's a choice that will bring us into line with what God wants from us. It's so simple, and yet our suspicious natures cause us to question why he would forgive so much, because we know how much there is in our lives to be forgiven for, right? Requiring, he's 
forgiven so much without requiring a huge price from each of us. But actually, there was a huge price that was paid. There was a huge price. The cross wasn't there on Calvary just as a decoration. It bore the body of the innocent Savior of the world who went to that cross for the redemption of all mankind. Who is all mankind? Oh. All mankind. He went to the cross for us, for all of us. He went to the cross. There was a huge price. There hasn't been a bigger price ever for anything than the life of Jesus Christ on the cross, paid for us. Every time one of us sins, it reactivates that prize paid at Calvary. If Tom, this Tom, sins, it's as if the cash register rings up a no-sale ticket. I don't pay the price because my Savior already paid for me, and therefore Satan cannot claim me. Satan can't claim me. He can't get his hooks into me because Jesus already paid the price. That no-sale ticket means I go with him. You see, the devil is always circling us to grab us as his when we fall. But Jesus is there to rescue us as he points to the cross, grabs our hand, and walks away with us. He points to the cross and he says, it's already paid. This is mine. This guy is mine. You have no claim on this fellow. Yes, Jesus shed his blood on the cross, but it was the Father's will that brought about that whole rescue operation. God, from the beginning, was going to save us. And he knew he was going to have to do something big, like sending his son to the cross, innocent blood to be shed for a sinful man. It's a big deal when a sinner is rescued because Christ is there to validate the promise from the Father. Let's read 1 Chronicles 7.14. A very familiar scripture, but dovetails with what we are studying today. 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name, so that makes us his people, we're called by his name, we're called Christians, right? We are called Christians. We are his people. If we will humble ourselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. There are four things there that he's asking us to do. If my people will humble themselves and pray and seek his face 
and stay away from those wicked ways that got us in that situation in the first place, then God is going to hear our cries and come to our rescue. Remember those old cowboy shoot-em-ups that here comes the Lone Ranger? I don't know what William Tell had to do with the Lone Ranger, but here he comes to save the day. Mighty Mouse even. Here I come to save the day. You know, all of those heroes, what were they doing? They were coming to rescue someone from evil or from bad or whatever. Gene Autry and all those other guys. All the old things that, that, that we used to watch as kids. Well, at least in my age bracket, I know that you guys don't even know who I'm talking about. But take it from me, they were heroes. Okay, they were heroes because they were rescuing the good people. Well, they were in a different category, slightly different category than Jesus Christ. And I say slightly tongue-in-cheek. God was saying, if you will do this, I will do this. And will forgive their sin and heal their land. There are four things that we need to be very aware of that qualify us then to be healed and be cleansed and be forgiven and just changed. Our whole lives will take on a different, different attitude and perspective. He was not asking for a cash payment. There was no mortgage to be signed, no 401k to be forfeited, no auto to be traded in or loan to be taken out so that the sinner could get back his title from Title Max. One only needs to humble himself and pray and seek the face of God and stay away from those sins that made us that filthy rags that we were called coming before the Lord. The sinner was also to pray, thus putting the petition for forgiveness in God's hands. We pray, he takes over. He hears us, what? You need me? Hallelujah. I love it. Come to me. Come to me, all you who are burdened. Come to me. That's God calling us. That's God, G-O-D, God calling us. It's a small formula, but it's an important one. God calls us. Do we answer? Do we answer in the affirmative? Do we then look at him and say, he's got his shirt there, rescue team. He and Jesus Christ, rescue team, there they are. Lord, people that go out into the ocean and get in too deep, I don't know why they would do that, but here's the lifesaver having to go out there, right? Having to go pull him out, having to rescue. Why? Because he voluntarily got out there. He voluntarily got out there into too deep water, and now needs to be rescued. Well, that's what we do when we get into sin. We get in too deep, 
And it doesn't have to be too deep, by the way. We can, you know, we can do it in a kiddie's little pool. We can get into sin real easy, very, very easily. It's not hard to fall into sin, folks. And it's not hard to call the rescuer to come to our aid. Thirdly, the sinner was to seek God's face. We don't run to the counselor unless the counselor is Jesus. We go to the Father himself where the power to forgive is found. We go to him. Remember in the temple when Jesus died on the cross? That huge, huge curtain that had hung there that couldn't be cut with a sword was torn from top to bottom, indicating to us you can now come into the Holy of Holies directly and talk to God yourself. You don't have to have somebody else come in for you. In fact, you can't have somebody save you but God. You can't have somebody come and pray for you and say, Lord, yeah, I want you to forgive him, please. You know, forgive him. Here's a, here's a payment. Forgive him, please. You can't. You can't do that. But you can come before him with nothing but your heart out there and say, Lord, please forgive me. This is my sin, Lord. I don't want it. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Please cleanse me of this. I need you. You love me. You said you did. I believe that. Cleanse me of this sin. Thirdly, the sinner was to see God's face. I'm sorry. After and finally, the sinner was to turn from his evil ways. No more of the revolving door where a person sins, repents, is forgiven, is tempted, sins, repents, is for. That's the revolving door that a lot of people believe is available to us. It is not available or it is not acceptable in the eyes of God. We don't do that. If we say we repent, did we repent or did we just say, you know what, I got caught, Lord. I'm sorry, I got caught. That's what we're really saying instead of, I repent. I'm sorry once and for all, Lord. I'm going to try my best not to do that again. Please forgive me. If we repent, we are to be holy, for he is holy. God is faithful to his promises, but we likewise need to be faithful in doing what he asks us to do. Remember what John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 21 through 23. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know the truth. Because you do know it. That's why I'm writing to you. And that no lie is of the truth. So when we lie, we've separated ourselves from the truth. And what is the truth? The word of God. The light of God. The love of God. Verse 22. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He 
who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. He said it one way and then he came back the other way and repeats it again. It's very simple. He who has the Son has the Father. He who doesn't have the Father is because he didn't have the Son. Simple, isn't it? Easy, isn't it? But very significant. In chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, John kicks it up a notch, doesn't he? He now brings in another of the promises of God. Let's read it. 1 John 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. We are called children of God. Why? Because we came to the Son. And it says, if we love the Son, the Father is going to love us. Because we loved his son. How about you? How about any of us that have children? If somebody comes up to you and says, what a bright little guy this is. Or what a beautiful little girl this is. I really like your little girl. Don't we feel proud? Don't we just burst with pride? We even beam with pride. You know, we shine with pride. Because somebody said something good about our children. Guess what God feels? Guess what he feels? He feels love for us too. When we say we love Jesus, we love Jesus Christ, the Father says, all right, I like you too, pal. I like you too. What can I do for you? Let me show you what I can do for you. Let me show you what I have stored up for you now that you've admitted you love my son. In verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Remember when John and Peter and James went up the mountain of transfiguration and they saw Jesus transform right before them, change. We talked about this last week. He shone like the sun. His clothing was bright as the sun. Transfigured right there before them. That's how we are going to see them. Remember what he admonished them? He said, don't tell anyone what you saw here. Don't tell anyone. This is just for you to witness. In essence, that's what it was. Only you were to witness this. Don't tell anyone until after I'm gone. Once I'm gone, let them know that this happened if you want. But don't tell anyone until then. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. This is John writing all about the love of God. And it's going to be repeated over and over because it's hard for us to accept that someone would love us knowing who we are, what we've done, where we've been, what we've said. We know who we are. And it's hard for us to understand why somebody would love us to that extent. 
Verse 2 says that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In Genesis 1, 26 through 20 and 27, the Bible tells us, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let them be like us. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we are created in the image of God. And we are going to see him in the celestial body, in the spiritual body. Not in this, because we are not created according to this. We are creating, we're created according to how he is in heaven. You understand the delineation there? This is another body. This is for this earth. This is what's required so that we can be on this earth. What's up there is an entirely different thing. Spiritual. Holy. Pure. No blemishes, no sin, no sadness, no sickness. A wonderful life awaits us. A wonderful life awaits us for all eternity. I don't see any, I don't see a lot of happy faces about that. This is good news. This is good news. And it's all for us. When Jesus is revealed to us, we shall be able to see him as he truly is now, not the way he was walking on earth. Why? Because he was in a physical body like us, like the rest of us. That's not the way he is now. What does what does uh, Revelation say? He's coming on his white horse with this double-edged sword that is going to be the judge, and he's coming as a hero not the little child that was born as a man. That's not him anymore. He's in his full power today, folks. He is the mighty God today. Amen? He's not coming, not as a mere mortal, but as a spiritual son of God. He will be in the celestial body. He who has all authority. Glory to God. He's got all authority now. How much does God love us then? Well, he loved us enough to make us in his own image. In the first epistle of Peter, chapter 2, 7 through 10, we also found this. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. Is that true? Is that true? To us who believe in him, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builder rejected has become the chief cornerstone. He has become something really, really great. If we believe in him, that's who he is. But if we don't, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word. 
to which they also were appointed. But you, you who? You who? No. You. Who's he talking about? He's talking about you. The all-encompassing you, all of us, congregation, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Doggone it, doesn't that move your heart? You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Does God share his greatness with just anyone? No. He shares it with his people. You, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, that's who he shares himself with. Who once were not a people, that's us, but are now the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. He showed us mercy by saving us through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how he showed his mercy for us. We are special, folks. We're special. You know what I said a little while ago about someone saying something nice about our kids? Well, now we can feel good about us because he loves us to the extent that he calls us his children. You are all his children. Wow. The children of God. You go out there in the street and, they say, you know, who do you think you are? I don't think I am. I know who I am. I'm a child of God. That's who I am. I'm a child of God. Whether you recognize it or accept it or want it, I am a child of God. Amen. Period. Are we the children of God then? Let me see. Let me see a show of hands. Who's a child of God? You too, kid. We're all children of God, aren't we? Isn't that wonderful? These scriptures we have read clearly tell us that because of God's love, we are now to be known as children of God, but it isn't as if we belong to a fraternity or a sorority. We don't belong to a club. We were bought by the blood of Jesus. We have been called a royal priesthood. We have been called his own special people. That requires that we be righteous as he is righteous that we be holy as he is holy. 1 John 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits that they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Already in John's time, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Wow. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. 
How many times did they have to repeat it to them because deception kept muddying, muddying up the water. Deception kept coming in and keeping people in doubt, keeping people off balance. Deception, deception, lies, 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 different doctrines. And they're trying to keep us straight. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. What more do we need to know? He who is in us is better than that guy that's out there roaming around, roaring like a lion. That's what we should think about him. I mean, we need to be careful, okay? We don't want to tempt Satan because he'll beat us every time. We don't get involved in discussions with him. We don't get involved in talking to him. We just claim Jesus Christ. That's it. Get away from me. I belong to him. Bye-bye. They are of the world. Therefore, they speak as of the world. And the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So you know what's right, you know what's wrong, which do you choose? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Remember, last week we spoke about that. In First uh, John, Chapter 4, in this the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Well, of course, but do we? But the, the easiest thing to do is not to love one another, right? First we judge, then we'll see if we're going to love. That's not the way the Father sees us. We are not here to judge each other, but to love each other as he has loved us. How much does he love us? Well, just think back on what we've done. And as I said, where we've been, what we've said, what we represent. Just think about that, and then you can answer the question, how much does he love us? By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of, of his spirit. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God. This is a repetition of John 14, 23. What did he say? This is the same John, okay, that wrote John 14, 23. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And he's repeating that in First John again. Finally, we come to chapter 5. And the last point John is making to believers, 
The theme of love is certainly the main thing to be received from this epistle, but it is also a great encouragement for us. 1 John 5, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. Everyone that loves Jesus loves the Father. Jesus is begot, the Father is, the, is begotten. No, Jesus is begotten. God begot him. <laughs> By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. It's telling us now they are not hard to keep. Why? Because he said, my yoke is easy. Take my yoke. It's easier than what you're carrying. The world has laid stuff on you that you don't need to carry. You bring that to me and take my yoke. For whatever is born of God overcomes, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Hey, repetition, repetition, as I said last week, repetition is good for to help us learn and get it inside of us. It's to hear it over and over, and it bears repeating. Can we have too much love? God is love. Can we have too much of God? Too much? Never. There can never be too much of God. It is imperative to have the love of God in our lives. Well, when we were told that whatever is born of God overcomes the world, isn't that the goal of believers? Don't we want to be able to withstand the temptations, not only of the flesh, but also of the eyes and of the mind? If we are faithful to believe in God, to love as God loves us, and to encourage others to do likewise, is there a reward from God for his children, and not as a reward like, you do this and I'll give you this. No, it's just that he wants to say, you know what, you're, you're beautiful. You've done a wonderful job. I want to bless you. Here's something for you. And that's 1 John. And that's 5, 11 through 13. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this is life this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. Period. It's easy. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have what? Eternal life. And that you may continue to believe in the name of the son of God. Love is a big deal to God. Love is a big deal. And the promise of eternal life is no small thing. He's talking about eternity, folks. How long is eternity? We'll count it after the service, okay? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that 
whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's eternal life. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? Do we believe that? Hallelujah! Then we have, every one of us, eternal life. Amen? We have eternal life. Yes! Glory to God. Hallelujah! We have eternal life because of the Father loving us, because we love His Son. Amen? That's the requirement. Hallelujah. Thank you, Joseph. Praise God. I can't give you any more encouragement than that, so let's pray and thank the Lord for this morning.